Creative Babble. It's easy to understand how a sect, like the Word of Faith Fellowship Church, controls its 750 members in Spindale, North Carolina. I mean, most members live in close proximity to the compound and attend daily prayers. But did you know that the Word of Faith Fellowship has nearly 2,000 members internationally? They have churches in both Brazil and Ghana, plus affiliate churches in Sweden, Scotland, and other countries. I don't get it. Why would Jane Whaley want to branch out to other churches in other countries? Why not just expand within North Carolina or the United States? What could she possibly gain from having members all over the world? The answer, some former members say, are her own personal human slaves. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet. territory ruled under Jane Whaley's kingdom. They have churches in two southeastern Brazilian cities, São Joaquim de Bicas, which is about six hours north of Rio de Janeiro, and Franco de Rocha, which is an hour outside of São Paulo. John Huddle, a former Word of Faith Fellowship member, recalls visiting the church in Brazil. You would think that leaving Spindale, North Carolina would be a liberating feeling, a rare treat, but who know? Even on the plane, Jane's rules were in full effect. You're given all these regulations and rules, and they practice how to get on the plane and off the plane. You're told what to wear. You're told not to look at the movies on the plane. You're told you get a buddy system. You're with somebody to watch you, and you watch them the whole time. If they were to do something that was against the rules, you're supposed to report it, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the same structure of control was in going on a trip as it would be going being in the church. I mean, that part of the culture traveled with you. It was not a vacation. Jane Whaley and her ministers frequently visit Brazil to spread the word of God, as Jane hears it. You were there to quote unquote be a minister, which now I look back and translates taking the word of faith culture to the Brazilian people and implementing it on those people. John Hutto explains that in the early years, Jane sent some key people to Brazil and Ghana to be her eyes and ears. She sent Bonnie Lawrence down there for years. And Bonnie is a, a Jane wannabe and would stay in touch with Jane on an intimate level, uh, frequently connecting either by, by phone or email to get her wisdom on situations in Brazil. I asked John if the services were held in Portuguese. Oh no, the Brazilians have to assimilate to Jane and not the other way around. The directive was for the Brazilians to learn English. John remembers landing in Brazil for the first time. He said as soon as he walked out of customs, the Brazilian church members were waiting to help him and the American ministers with their bags. They hopped on a bus and headed an hour north, 
He remembers he couldn't even see outside of the bus windows because the curtains were down. When they arrived at the church, John was surprised at how familiar everything looked. But the inside of the Brazilian churches mirror the inside of the sanctuary at Spindale. In fact, one time recently, just recently, I saw a picture of the inside of the Brazilian church and told the person that was, or asked the person that was showing me the picture, was that Spindale or Brazil? That's that's Brazil. But the flowers look the same, the stage look the same. But there were more similarities than just the decor. The Brazilian church practiced Jane's signature screaming prayer and the violent shaking. Jane conquered Brazil and offered them salvation. But for a lucky few, Jane blessed them with an even better opportunity. For the Brazilians to come to America was like coming to Mecca. America, the land of the free, land of opportunity, right? Uh, At least it was billed that way. And from some of the testimonies that have come out in recent articles, didn't work out so well. This is Anna, one of the former Brazilian members. She was brought over to the U.S. from Brazil. She told the Associated Press that when she first arrived in Spindale, church members showered her with love. The first time you go, they treat you well. But afterwards, they start treating you bad. Anna says things got pretty bad quickly. She claimed she worked full-time as a teacher's assistant and then babysat church members' children at night, all without pay. Then the physical abuse started. Anna says that Jane and other ministers spanked her with a wooden stick. She told the Associated Press that they blasted her with screaming prayers because she was unclean and possessed by the devil. And we're not talking about a small tap on the butt kind of spank. Anna says that this went on for 40 minutes. She was finally allowed to return to Brazil after she left the church. When the Brazilians arrive in North Carolina, they typically speak broken English. It was a horror living there. This is Rebecca Mello. Her dreams of freedom quickly turned into a nightmare. She told the Associated Press that she was brought to the U.S. in 2009 on a student visa. Immediately after she got here, church leaders took her passport and her money and quickly put her to work. We are made to get up early, make the kids breakfast, um, cook, you know, do their beds, pick up their laundry. She says she did all this and basically earned nothing. All in all, 16 Brazilians have come forward to share their personal stories of abuse and enslavement. We were there working, but we never got paid. If you're not paid for something, even for your food, I would say that you're a slave. So how is this even possible? I mean, especially in the United States. I mean, surely this is illegal, right? They all had the same visas. They all had the same rules and restrictions, and they all still worked um, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, that's Jay Plummer, a former Word of Faith Fellowship member, recounting to the Associated Press the Brazilian church members who worked for him during his time at the church. He says that the American workers were paid, but the Brazilians who worked with him didn't get a dime. When you're a foreigner, if you don't have your passport, you can't go anywhere. You can't run down the street and ask for help without your passport. And they know that. But these are temporary visas, right? I mean, they can't legally keep these people in the United States forever. Silly me. There's a way around that. Here's John Huddle again. My son was 18 years old. 
in three months. And he was married off to a young Brazilian lady, sweet lady, I understand. It's my understanding her passport, her visa was expiring in a few months. Now, once she was married, her ability to stay in the country was better. By the way, it's illegal to marry someone in order to try it to avoid immigration laws. to know more about the church in Brazil. So with the help of John Huddle, I was able to talk with Carlos Henrique Apolinario. Was it as strict as it is today? Was it as extreme? You know, I remember since I was very young that the church is a different church from, from other churches because you cannot even watch TV you cannot listen to music. You can't go to other churches. You can't see movies. You can't do anything. Everything you, you, you have to do, everything you want to do, you have to, to ask, ask permission for the, the leaders of the church. I mean, it doesn't sound very different, does it? When your mom joined the church, was there ever a period of time when you believed what they believed? Or was it something that you never really felt like you were part of it? I like to go to the church, to the service. But I never liked the way the, the people used to control our lives. That control always bothered me. The control I, I never liked. But the church, in the beginning, I liked. But that control on us, I always disagreed. Here in North Carolina, a lot of the ex-former members say that the church has beat them. Did, did you have any of that happening in Brazil? Yeah, many times. I, I experienced that uh, many times. I suffered physical abuse. I remember a service when American leader, she was here in Brazil. Jane Whaley? No, uh, was Bonnie. She was living in Brazil. And she discovered that I was listening to music. I was listening to evangelical music. But it wasn't a, a music of the church. It was a, another music. And she started screaming a lot with me. She started pushing me and pushing me in front of, of everybody in the, in, the, in the service. It was like a show. I suffered a lot of that. You're in front of the whole church and she is, what, pushing you? Is she hitting you with her uh, hand closed? Yes, she was hitting me. Just like punching you and you can't defend yourself, right? I couldn't do anything. I used to, for example, if she, she say, uh, you're possessed you're wrong. I would say, no, I'm not. You're wrong. But I suffered a lot for doing that. Carlos didn't know how to explain it at the time, but he was different than the rest of the boys. Tell me about discovering your sexuality in this church, you know, that's oppressive. Growing up, I, I started to, to see that I was gay. But in that time, I didn't know the real meaning of being gay. No, I knew it was different because I had different feelings. I had different thoughts that bothered me a lot because 
every day people would say that my thoughts was you know unclean thoughts and then I would be possessed and they you know screamed at me every day that uh, brought a, a a great confusion in my mind. Church leaders told him that if they didn't intervene, he would get cancer or AIDS. And they always will, would uh, take me to the pastor's office and started screaming and screaming and screaming. And they, they slapped my face many times. The screaming, blasting prayers was a form of exorcism meant to free him from his gay demons. They will call me gay. They started calling me in the, in the office, screaming with me a lot and telling me that I was going to a perverted way, uh, that God didn't create me that way to be gay. And they used to, to make prayers with me. A lot of people would reach me and pick my head, you know, and scream a lot with me to expose my, my gay demons. I think I was 14. I really tried not being gay. The worst sin was a homosexual sin. I was so ashamed of telling people about that. I was very ashamed. I was ashamed of me. And I didn't want to tell any anyone in that time about that because I really thought it was wrong. I always tried to, to hide, but I, I, I couldn't hide, but I tried. They told him that as soon as he has a gay thought, to call them immediately and they would pray with him. It had a time that I started believing that, that I would be healed. I would tell them everything in my mind and they would would scream with me, but I would tell them because, you know, I was so confused. Maybe they're right. I'm, I'm going to do what they're telling because I'm wrong. Had a period of time of such confusion in my mind that I thought I was going crazy. was going to be cured from his homosexuality, well, they were going to have to take extreme measures. They said I was becoming a, a gay person and a perverted, that God would heal me. So church leaders took him from his mother's house and sent him to live at the pastor's farm. And he told me to live in that farm with another family next to him. And he said that that man uh, I was going to live with, he was going to teach me how to be a man that I didn't know, but he, that man would teach me. And I was forced to do hard work. Carlos says that they forced him to work hard labor without any compensation. And I didn't want to be in that farm at all. I told them that I, I was leaving that farm. I was not going to be there. And then they came to me and told me, if you leave this farm, we are going to take you out of school. You're not going to study anymore. So I didn't want to lose that. And I had to stay in that farm for, you know, several months. And what did your mom say about all this? My mom agreed with because she always hated the way I acted like gay, you know, 
she used to tell the the ministers in the church to help me. She is part of everything. When Carlos graduated high school, he desperately tried having feelings for women. I had like a, a girlfriend, but she was named uh, uh, just a friend. I stayed with her for one year and a half, I think. You know, I didn't have any any feeling about her, you know. Didn't feel anything at all. And it bothered me a lot because in that time I... Uh, I wanted to 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 feel something for her, but I, I couldn't, you know, it wasn't in me. So I tried very hard, but no, it didn't work. And so for a period of time, I, I really believed that I would be healed and I would not be gay anymore. He got a job working at an office owned by another church member. And one day during lunch, he remembers walking outside and looking around. And I started to see you know, different people out of the church. And I started thinking, I want this freedom for me. Carlos walked over to another office, not run by the church, and he asked if he can work with them. They said yes. And then I, I told the, the ministers in the church that I was going to get another job. So they didn't, they didn't allow that. And... I waited for three months and, you know, the things were going worse and worse. And I decided that I was going to move from job and I moved from job and I left the church. And they didn't like try to keep you there? They told me that demons were possessing my mind, that those kind of things that they say. And they, they told me that uh, they will take me to uh, North Carolina. They told me that. And in that time, I used to talk to Matthew Fanner in the internet, and he was telling me the physical abuse in the church in North Carolina. I was very afraid going to North Carolina and being victim of abuse. And I decided to leave. Matthew Fenner is a very, very important character in the story. He too was beaten for being gay. And currently, he's awaiting trial against five ministers who are accused of beating and kidnapping him. We'll talk more about Matthew Fenner in future episodes. I was out of the church. And she had a meeting with me one day. And she told me that if I have contact with this person, including Matthew Fanner, she would forbid me to have contact with my mom, my family, to tell me those things. And I was out of the church. In North Carolina, it's worse. When Jane and her ministers were here in Brazil, you know, the abuse was very worse. They, they brought the abuse to Brazil. Jane is responsible for those abuses. She she taught people here in Brazil how to abuse people. She she taught them. She controls people here in Brazil. She controls everything here in Brazil. Last year, uh, I took a decision to tell my mom that I was I was dating a man. That day, she started crying, and we had a long conversation about that. And she didn't agree, but she will. She said she would respect me. At first. It seemed like she accepted her son. But then word got out around the church and suddenly 
His mother told him that she didn't want anything to do with him. And then the next week, she told me she was not going to have any contact with me anymore, that she didn't want to be in the same place as I was. And since then, you know, I don't have any contact with her since last year. The people in the church, you know, are manipulating her to don't contact me at all. I saw my mom. I was going to college and she was in the car, you know, in the street and she saw me and she, she just, uh, she didn't say even hello to me. She was amazed to, to see me because since last year, I didn't even see her in the, in the street. So yesterday I, I saw her for the first time. And when she saw me, she was amazed. But, you know, she didn't even say hi or hello. She turned her face. What's the future look like for you? Today, I have a total different life. I, I'm free. I do what I want to do. You know, I work, I have a, a good job. I can do, you know, whatever I want. So it's a very, a very good life. So in the future, you know, I want to, to be free like I'm today. Carlos says life is good. And today he's studying to be a lawyer and works at a small office to pay for school. He's free to be whoever he wants to be. But even with all that, he says he suffered a lot because of the Word of Faith Fellowship. Brazilian church leaders reject all allegations that they abuse their church members. They released a statement saying that the former members accused are full of many lies and distorted facts. They went on to write that the church in Brazil did not tolerate or permit any form of abuse in their ministry. So now that we know what we know, what's being done about this? Well, Brazilian authorities opened up multiple investigations looking into the accusations of abuse and human trafficking. Brazilian prosecutors are requesting that a judge shut down the church and distribute its assets among its congregants. On top of that, they want the church to pay each victim $15,000 each. So that's Brazil. That's what they're doing. What are we doing about it here in the U.S.? Well, it's not entirely clear. Jill Rose, the U.S. attorney in Charlotte, North Carolina, told the Associated Press that her office has an active, ongoing investigation into the allegations against the Word of Faith Fellowship. She says fact-gathering is not quick or an easy process, which at times may lead to the erroneous perception that my office is not actively looking into the matter. Okay, well, Jill Rose, it's been a year since you made that statement. Well, it turns out Jill Rose, the U.S. attorney, eh, she no longer works there. She has since moved on and now works in Kuwait as a Justice Department legal advisor. So who's looking into this? I put in a call to the U.S. Attorney's Office, but I haven't heard back. Sometimes this whole process just feels a little futile. I mean, it seems like every time local authorities start getting traction, it goes nowhere. Like nothing sticks. Meanwhile, the church is fighting back. They've added testimonials from their current members on their YouTube channel. They even have their own weekly radio show where current members take to the airwaves to clear their names. But it's all propaganda, right? 
I mean, they refuse to talk to the media. I've written to Josh Farmer, the church attorney, several times, and nothing. I even sat next to that Hispanic couple at the forum and gave them my card. I told them, give my information to Jane. They were really, really nice people, but I doubt I'll ever hear back from them. Then one day, out of frustration, I started digging through my files, and when all of a sudden, I came across this document with Jane Whaley's personal email address. I thought, what the heck? I'm going to send her an email. It's worth a try, right? I wrote, hi, Jane. I'm an independent reporter working on a story about Word of Faith Fellowship. It makes me sad that the national media is so one-sided. No one has ever given you an honest opportunity to tell your side of the story. And then I put in bold letters. I'm willing to devote a whole hour of airtime to tell your side of the story with no tricks. I realize you have a radio show and YouTube channel stating your point of view, but no third party has ever had a chance to speak with you directly. I promise, no tricks. My offer is for you to speak to my listeners directly. (laughs) I wrote this email on Friday night, and honestly, I did not expect a reply. I woke up the next morning and grabbed my phone just so that the light could open up my eyes. And I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. I told my wife, you'll never believe who just wrote me an email. It was Jane Whaley. She said, I am checking with my attorneys. I encourage you to listen to the testimonies on the radio. No children have ever been abused in our church. It is just the opposite. Everyone is greatly loved. So next time on Pretend Radio, I'm meeting Jane Whaley. And so are you. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Next week, I have a personal invitation to meet Jane Whaley. The problem is that the last people who were invited to meet her, well, they got the cops called on them. Jane, this is private property and we're asking you to leave. Ms. Whaley asked me. This is private property and we're asking you to leave. Still, I have to take my chances. How are you, sir? Yeah, um, I'm here to speak with Jane Whaley. She invited me to service today. Yeah. I'm going deeper into the story than any other journalist. You got all these. Hey, uh, you got all these attorneys. Yeah, yeah, I, I recognize you from. Uh, what in the world am I getting myself into?
Next week's episode is one of my favorites of the season. I can't wait for you to listen to it. But if you can't wait, the next two episodes are available right now on Patreon. Just visit pretendradio.org and hit the donate button. Speaking of Patreon, not all of my Patreon supporters are thrilled with my work this season. I know for a fact that the church attorneys are listening because they had a lot to say about the Brazil episode way before I ever released it. This is what the church attorneys told the Daily Courier, the local paper in Rutherford County. And I quote, We are saddened to learn that pretend radio podcasts produced by Javier Leva are simply another outlet for defamatory lies against our church. The lies being told by Carlos and Anna from Brazil are outrageous. Carlos has never come to our church, and we know he was never beaten in Brazil, unquote. Then on Patreon, Bonnie Lawrence, who is one of the church ministers referenced in this episode, wrote, My name is Bonnie Lawrence, and all the allegations that Carlos Enrique made about me are a complete lie. None of it ever happened. I'm a member of the Word of Faith Fellowship, and I spent a lot of time in Brazil. The case against the church in Brazil was dismissed by a judge. The judge found that the testimony from the people against the church was not credible regarding slave labor. Bonnie pointed to an article from a local Rutherford County blog named R.C. Catalyst. The blog claims that they have court documents from Brazil where a judge dismissed a case against the Brazilian church. The document from the Brazilian judge states that there is no evidence to indicate that the church is practicing slavery. The blog quotes a judge from the documents, and I quote, For these reasons, and in addition to other inconsistencies, I will not accept the allegations of the witnesses of the public ministry of labor, unquote. And by the way, they wrote, except with an E. I point this out because I can't confirm the source of this document. Anyway, the blog also states that the judge concluded that, quote, for this reason, I dismiss as unfounded the pleadings in question, unquote. No other news media has reported this other than this local blog. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that it's awfully strange that a small blog got this document and no one else could. Bonnie Lawrence also wrote on Patreon, and I quote, The judge found that there was not any slave labor at the Word of Faith Fellowship and that those young Brazilians that visited the church were not forced to work and were not held against their will, unquote. I also contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office right before releasing this episode to see if there were any updates from the U.S. investigation into human trafficking and forced labor. Leah Bantavani, the public affairs officer for the Western District of North Carolina's U.S. Attorney's Office, wrote me and said, I can only share that the investigation is still ongoing. Short and sweet. Okay, one more thing before I go. I want to remind you that I will be part of a panel at the 2019 True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. There will be so many great shows in attendance. For more information, visit tcpf2019.com or see my show notes for more details. Today's episode was edited by the talented Molly Clay. Molly and I met at a photo shoot in Boston. She had never listened to my podcast before. But on the flight back from Boston, she binged a whole bunch of episodes. And when we landed, she asked if she could help out. I said, heck yeah. And I love what she did with the episode. Thank you so much, Molly. 
Now, check out these promos from some of the shows that will be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival. Hi, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our True Crime Podcast, Criminology. In each season of Criminology, we take a deep dive to tackle some of the biggest cases in the history of true crime using classified police files and interviews with investigators, experts, victims, and survivors, all in an effort to accurately and completely examine the cases we cover. And season four of Criminology is out right now. We're taking on cases solved in 2018 using DNA with the help of resources like Parabon, GEDmatch, and Forensic Genealogy. And we've got some great interviews this season with people like Paul Holes, who helped bring down the Golden State Killer, Curtis Rogers, founder of GEDmatch, Steve Armantrout, the CEO of Parabon, and Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogist who's had a hand in solving some of these cases. Past seasons of Criminology are available to binge, including in-depth coverage of the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy. New episodes drop Saturdays at 10 o'clock p.m., and you can find and subscribe to Criminology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Insight is a podcast that explores true crime and mysteries. With two hosts from two continents. We recommend trying some of our recent episodes, like our episode on Sylvia Brown, where we take a critical look at the famed psychic and the cases she staked her reputation on. Or try our episode on Kanika Jenkins. After she was found in a hotel freezer, her death was ruled an accident, but her family does not want to believe it. We also recently covered the disappearance of Joan Reish. Does the novel she took out of the library point to the answer to the mystery of what happened to her? We also covered a case requested by many of our listeners, the circumstances leading up to the death of actress Natalie Wood. You can find Insight in your favourite podcast app and all across social media just by searching for Insight Podcast. That's Insight, two words, podcast. Creative Babble.